without the additional brain damage, without the horrible childhood experiences, he probably he probably still would have been a psychopath or a schizoid or you know some combination of the two. But all of that stuff on top of that turned him into a like a hypersexual paraf- paraphilic serial killer. Hello and welcome back to another Mind Matters. This week we're going to be revisiting a theme that we covered one time previously on our show about serial killer Israel Keys. And we'll be focused on Richard Ramirez, otherwise known as the Night Stalker, who terrorized Greater Los Angeles in 1985, committed multiple murders rapes, uh, robberies, and just atrocious brutalities that had many of the citizens of Los Angeles at the time feeling under siege. Uh, It recalls a little bit an experience I had in the mid-70s when I was a, a kid. We had the son of Sam Killer. And at the time, only being a a child, as I mentioned, it, it was still on the lips of, of everybody's mouths. It was still uh, something that I was aware of being, um, being this very young person. And uh, there was a sense of palpable fear of someone who could go around and, um, and basically end people's lives at, at a whim. Uh, so certainly this is what we got a good taste of in watching a documentary called Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer on Netflix recently. And it was an examination of the investigation by two detectives uh, who had to piece together uh, from very few clues at first um, who was doing what and and how a number of crimes began to show a linkage. And as the case eventually proved, uh, this young individual, I think he was 24 or 25 at the time, uh, Richard Ramirez, a who had up until then only um, apprehended for petty thievery and, uh, and traffic violations and things of that matter, um, was ultimately responsible uh, for a string of almost unimaginably uh, evil um, acts upon people. Uh, he would basically go into their homes as they slept, and uh, quite often, if there was a couple, would would shoot the husband, murder the husband, uh, in many cases, rape the wife and or murder her, um, and if there was a child, in many cases, would rape the child. Um, so we're, we're looking at this and, and trying to understand uh, the, the... We're trying to look at all of this kind of horror in uh, as many different uh, angles as possible to gain some insights into you know, what, what produces... Uh, these these kind of barbaric uh, behaviors in such a person are they born uh, are they made uh, in some cases as as some analysts like to suggest that 
Richard Ramirez was made because of certain events that occurred in his childhood. Uh, those are some of the questions that I think we'll be examining today. And, um, and also, if nothing else, a reminder that uh, many of the most famous uh, serial killers um, looked and behaved under most circumstances quite normally. Uh, and put up a great facade to cover their urges to cause incredible destruction. Um, in the case of Ramirez, uh, the, you know he, the, the guy would he he was ill kempt. He smelled. Uh, he would wear a, a black ACDC um, rock and roll baseball cap. Uh, had terrible hygiene. Um, missing teeth, uh, he can be spotted seeing a satanic pentagram uh, tattoo or, or etching on his hand. So um, it was a little more obvious to some that this guy was bad news than one might expect uh, from the profiles that we've read about with other serial killers. And um, with that in mind, I think we can... Uh, start and, and maybe talk about the, the show and, and where we felt it succeeded. Yeah, so the, what's the, what was it called? Uh, Night Stalker, Hunt for a Serial Killer? The Hunt for a Serial Killer. Yeah, so it's a Netflix show. It just came out recently. It's four episodes. It's fairly well done. It focuses mostly on the investigation. And I actually, I like that. Um, not that I'd, well, I liked it as a kind of just a change from the, the regular, like the Unsolved Mysteries or just kind of History Channel or the the type of made-for-TV documentary that focuses on a serial killer. Like, I've, I've seen enough of those, I think. So so this was a nice uh, a nice break from the ordinary, seeing the, talking to mostly the, de the detectives and the surviving, uh, and the survivors, mostly the, de the detectives following them as they put the case together. It's uh, more of like a police procedural than a, you know, than a horror show or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that's the the focus of the of the TV series. It's only in the last episode that they catch him, and that any that really that really deals with Ramirez to you know to any great degree. Up until then, it's the focus on the crimes and the investigation. So <clears throat> maybe I'll just give some of the interesting things about that I found about the investigation that early on. The, it was like the Homicide Bureau <clears throat> in L.A., so not the LAPD, kind of like a, a different organization. And what was the, the lead detective's name? Frank S Sorrento or something like that? Oh. A, well, maybe you guys can, maybe you can look that up yeah, I so I get it. But uh, there were a bunch of detectives. They focus on Frank and Gil, Gil Cirillo, Cirillo, Carrillo? Carrillo, yeah. Gil Carrillo. And uh, a young guy, like he was in, in his mid-30s, a young detective. And so you get a little bit of their background. Uh, Frank had actually been on the case for the Hillside Strangler. Salerno. Frank Salerno. Salerno, yeah. So um, so you see these guys, they're still alive, and they, they, tell, they, they bring you through the case. And it was interesting because uh, Gil was the young guy on the, on the team. He'd basically... You know, he was the new guy on the on the homicide team, and early on there was a there was this murder, so uh, like a, a really brutal murder murder. 
there was another murder or similar case that might have it might have actually just been a a brutal beating. I, I can't remember if the second vis- victim had died or not. And then there was a series of child abuse cases. And Gil was the first person to think that all of them might be connected. First, first he thought that I'm pretty I'm pretty sure first he thought that the two um, like break-ins were related, the the murder in the second case. And then he he saw these child molestation cases, which were like a totally different MO, except for breaking into a person's house. And I think at that point he f- he the the detectives found that there was uh, a shoe print on in one of the cases involving the children and in one of the home invasions, and the shoe print matched. So at that point he said, "Okay, we've got a circ- circumstantial um, link between these cases." But still, the the people at the at the bureau or at the yeah at the bureau when he when he'd bring up his theory that these were connected, just kind of laughed him off. And he said that uh, he'd hear stories when he'd leave the room. They'd like be cussing him out for trying to be too big for his britches, you know, and trying to make a name for himself. But he was pretty sure that they were connected. And finally, there was another case, another murder, torture, rape, one of the three or combination. And there was the footprint again. So now he had three footprints connecting all of these different cases, three shoe prints. And that's what got Frank Salerno to ask him to be his partner. And so then they, those were the two lead detectives on the case from then on. And I, I found that one of the most interesting bits about the case was that shoe print. Because once they had the, the cast, once they had the print, and could go and find this shoe, they found the, sh- the type of shoe that it belonged to, and it was an Avia sneaker. And it wasn't a super popular shoe, but they found it, and so they contacted the guy that created the shoe, and he gave them all kinds of data, like his his plans for the shoe, his like you know the patented design for the the shoe print, the sole of the shoe, and then all of his sales data. So here are all the shoes we produced. They they narrowed it down because they had a, an idea that it was a black shoe from some of the witness testimony, because there are some people that had sur- either survived or had an encounter that, with him that where they'd gotten away essentially. So they were pretty sure it was a black shoe, and, and they narrowed it down. This is the type of shoe. It was in a size 11 and a half. And he showed him the, the sales data. And it's like, we produced something like 57 black Avia, like whatever model, shoes. And we shipped 56 of those off to like New Mexico or something, some other state. And we shipped one of them to California. So there was only one pair of this specific shoe in the entire state, and it was Richard Ramirez who had it. So they had the shoe. This was the only guy that had this shoe, this this pair of shoes. In the and so if they caught the guy wearing this shoe, chances are, unless he'd stolen the shoes from the real killer, this was their guy. And that comes as a thread throughout the episodes. Is this is this shoe because the the shoe print just keeps showing up at a lot of these scenes, whether it's on the uh, the back porch or the front porch or inside. There was a bloody print one time on a bedspread. One, another shoe print on a woman's face. And that led into just one of the interesting and frustrating uh, bits about, I guess, just police investigations in general, because it seems to be a recurring theme, is 
the amount of interdepartmental bickering and um, one-upmanship and just um, competition. So they know about this shoe. Well, and not, not only that, not only between departments, but with media as well and with politicians. So there's those three things. First, with other um, other police departments, because Ramirez was committing crimes all over the place, so they had to interact with other jurisdictions. And they had, they found one of the cars that he'd used, that he'd stolen and used, and they wanted to dust it for prints, get evidence from it. And I think it was LAPD said, oh, we'll do it. Let us do it. So they're like, well, okay. And kept calling. Well, where, so where is it? When are you guys going to do it? When is it? I don't know how long it was. It was like weeks later when they finally, maybe it was even months later, maybe not months, weeks later, they finally get access to the car because they, LAPD said, admits that they hadn't done anything with it yet. It was still in the lot and they just left it there in the, in the elements for this whole time. So all, there was no evidence in it anymore. Well, at least no fingerprint evidence. So yeah, that was, I imagine like really, really frustrating for them because they, they knew that this was, uh, the car that this guy had used Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, they knew that there was at least a chance, you know, you don't know what you're going to find in there, but there was a chance you would find something. Um, and then to find out that the LAPD not only, you know, kept it away from them for their own, you know, whatever reason, but left it sitting out in the sun, in the hot California sun for weeks. It's it's like that is gross negligence. Well, another case of gross negligence that was connected to that car was the the... Uh, professional card that they found Mm -hmm. so there was a a card of a of a dentist um dentist name found in the card and so uh, the detectives decided to follow up with this dentist in chinatown and you know i think they found that the that the uh that ramirez had gone to him once before and fit the description of uh, the assailant you know, and, and needed a lot of dental work done. So they decided quite smartly to have some uh, officers staked out at the... Yeah, two Chinese officers, right? Right, at the office. And it looks like you want to follow well, yeah, up there on was. That. I had a question. Uh, I couldn't remember. Was it that there were like two instances of negligence just with the dentist? Like when they had found the card and went to talk to the dentist and they found out that he had been there, he had actually been there like somewhat very recently. Was that he, correct? He was there pretty re- Yeah, yeah. He was there recently. Um just like a couple of weeks previously, I think. So, or I thought it was like a, no, a week. No, what was it? I can't remember for sure. It might have been that the card was an appointment card. Mhm. And so if they would have um oh, I'm not really clear on that because they it was weeks later when they finally got access to the car from LAPD and that's when they found the card. And I think it was just that it wasn't that there was a specific thing that they could have caught him at the at the dentist. It's just that they would have had that many weeks more um, notice so that they... It was basically a lead that came weeks later than it should have. Mm-hmm. Because if they would have found that card, they would have been able to talk to the dentist weeks previously and get more information on him. And in the meantime, he Ramirez had committed several other crimes. But he'd registered 
with the den- <clears throat> with the dentist under a fake name like uh, Richard, I don't know, Marky or something like that. Just just some fake Richard last name, Mena or something, Mena, something like that. And so they didn't know his name at that time, but they did get access to his dental records. And you know, I guess they were just if they would have had that clue earlier, they just would have been that much ahead on the investigation. Well, so in in getting the dental records of of his, uh, one of the detectives brought the dental records to another friend, and the guy looked at the the films and said, "This guy needs a lot of work, so he is very likely to be back at this dentist," which provided a great opportunity and speaks to what we were saying a moment ago. It, it was a it was a chance to post some police officers to the office and see who comes in matching the description and apprehend him as a suspect. So uh, at some point, the LAPD or whoever was in charge of posting these officers says, we don't have enough money. And so we're going to pull off the officers from from this office duty. And it was that day that uh, Richard Ramirez showed up at the office. Well, so they pulled the... They pulled the two officers and they said, we'll install a, like a, a, bank a, a panic button. Mm-hmm. So they installed this button, like a red button that the dentist could push when Ramirez came in to send a message to the, the, to the police to get their asses over there. Right. And so that, that next day, the first day that the, the officers aren't there and they have this button, Ramirez shows up. And the emergency button malfunctions. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> of course. So um, this just speaks to all of the kinds of things that had occurred that hampered and frustrated the detectives to no end because they are, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, it's like they're getting closer and, and, and time's wasting and people are, people are getting killed under their watch. And so there is this urgency to uh, make the most out of every possible lead that they can, uh, follow up on yeah because he one of the most important things about the shoe was the fact that it identified him Mm -hmm. because nothing he left nothing else he um you know no fingerprints or anything like that and it comes out later that he had been a student of um you know ted bundy and charles manson um in the sense that like he had read their read their stuff, read that, read what, what they had done and the, you know, police reports and the news media about it. Um, so he was meticulous. He had studied this. He knew what he was doing. So that's why they were so desperate and so thankful that they had, they had, you know, this one clue, the shoe that they could match to the one individual in California who, who had this shoe because there was literally no other evidence because he was so careful. Um, and yeah, like that's a, it's another reason why uh, it became so frustrating for them to have potential leads only to have those leads get bunked or bungled mm-hmm. in, in some way, shape or form for whatever reason, mm-hmm. uh, because they had so little to go on, which I mean, that's just, you know, cold and calculating, like, you know, just like we know that uh, these people tend to be. So with the shoe, one of the some detective don't know who spoke to a journalist, a local like TV journalist, and told her about the shoe. So she calls up, or 
can't remember if it was in person or on the phone, talks to Salerno and says, so what about the, what about this shoe? And he says, what shoe? And she says, the Avia. And he's, and he's like, oh, geez. Um, what, what are we going to do? He says, well, what do, what do you want? And, uh, and she says, well, I'm going to run a story on it. And he's like begging her, no, you can't do that. That's like one lead. As soon as he finds out about that, he's going to stop. He's going to ditch the shoes. And that's the one thing that we can use him to tie a lot of these cases together. Like, don't do it. And she says, no, I'm going to do it. <laughs> so he talks to his boss. His boss, I think it was his boss, sets up an interview. So she she's interviewed too in the documentary. And she says, she basically admits that she used it as a, as a technique to get an interview with the detectives. So she was basically extorting them with this, uh, threatening to release this vital clue to the public in order to get like the first interview on the case with these detectives. So they did the interview with her. But then, probably a month or two later, Ramirez heads up to, Calif- uh, to San Francisco and commits a crime. And the detectives there um, get in touch with the detectives working the case and they li- and link it together. So the San Francisco San Francisco cops talk to the mayor of San Francisco at the time, uh, Diane Feinstein. Mm-hmm. And that night she holds this huge press conference on TV, s- spilling everything, talking about all the different all the evidence. All of these crimes are connected. He's got a specific shoe that he wears. This is his MO. They, he she just makes public all of the information that was confidential to the police for the investigation. So from that moment on, they never found another shoe print and they, that those leads were all busted. So the detectives were very uh, upset at uh, Feinstein for basically ruining their investigation. And they actually got their sheriff to, to make his own public statement, um, basically calling her out and, and saying what a, what a horrible thing it was. What a horrible thing it was that she'd actually like ruined their investigation. But they they eventually ended up catching him. Um, there was also some ballistic evidence lead, uh, linking cases together. He used a few different guns, and eventually they got some some people that came forward with information. Um, some people that knew him said, "Oh, I think I know. I think I know this guy," um, and that was con- confirmed. They found one of the weapons that. Ramirez had used that he'd given to some guy. They found that weapon. And then they found another, uh, one of their um, police informants had a, a, a necklace that he found. He said, I think, I think it was like someone he knew whose wife had bought it from a friend of, of a friend and who'd got it from this guy, uh, Richard. Mm-hmm. So they interview the guy that, that got it from Richard. And after a very humorous encounter, uh, it's it's really dramatic. I think it was the end of, of episode three. But the cop talking to this guy eventually gets him to say his name, Richard mm. Ramirez. So now they know who it is. They find him. They find his his booking, uh, his mugshot from when he was arrested, like s- several, either weeks or months before the murders started. And they've got their guy. So then they... the the police decides to go public with the information, put out his photograph everywhere. Try to they they I'm pretty sure at this point they know that he's in I think he was in El Paso where he was from 
and he was coming back in on a bus because he used the Greyhound. And they were waiting for him. He he made the cops there. And then as he's moving around town, he realizes all these people are recognizing him. He sees his face on a on a newspaper, gets on a bus. The guy across the, uh, from him on the bus looks at him, looks, you know, looking at his paper like that, like in a movie. He gets off. He gets on the phone. Ramirez sees him. He, and then the guy on the phone flags down a, uh, a truck and says, that's the killer, you know, follow him. Ramirez runs like dozens and dozens of blocks all through the city and eventually he's trying to carjack this this car and a whole bunch of people in the neighborhood just kind of swarm him like uh, one guy beat like hits him with a metal rod they're all surrounding him and then there's this then this cop this you know deputy just is down the street and comes and arrests him and that was the end of it so that's how that goes well i i just wanted to comment on uh a piece of the narrative that you mentioned before, which is that this one detective from San Francisco who's investigating it follows this lead, follows this lead, uh, the stolen piece of jewelry, which is enables him to get the name of Richard Ramirez, where um, Frank Salerno and Gil uh, Carrillo of Los Angeles, who have been working on this case for months, have not had this break. Uh, in the investigation that that this one you know that this one case uh, inspired in San Francisco so I thought that was very interesting that there was this kind of asymmetrical um, force in in capturing and uh, helping to apprehend um, Ramirez that you know out of nowhere you know the right guy at the right time with the right intention and the right determination was able to basically make a major uh, block of progress in, into the case, um, which to me suggested that, you know, when when people are aligned, because this was obviously a competent, sincere cop who, who wanted to see justice done to the killer, you know, when you have this network of, of, of sincere investigators, uh, and that can go for any project or any endeavor, you know, you never know where that crucial piece of help um, can come from. And so, uh, because for most of the program, we're, you know, we're dealing with the egos of, uh, you know, you, you get these little inklings of how, you know, the egos of some cops and some departments and, and the politicians and the people involved are all trying to be Budinskis and, and do things that serve their own egos and careers and interests. Um, which which counteracts any kind of beneficial uh, results. So I found that to be very interesting. And that was one thing that I got really annoyed with the reporter woman because she was being a Budinsky and she she only cared about herself and what she was able to get out of this whole thing, how she was able to get the the scoop and and you know make a name for herself meanwhile it's like you know dozens of kids are getting sexually assaulted uh, families are getting destroyed women are getting raped and killed and husbands yeah. are getting killed and it's like you don't care one whit about what's really going on and you just care about yourself what a selfish just yeah that one that was just uh despicable well, so that 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 reminds me, getting back to what Harrison was saying a moment ago about this entire neighborhood pursuing yes. Yes. Uh, Ramirez down. 
uh, and and like not letting him go and being super tenacious and then and then going to the police precinct where he was finally held in in custody after the initial arrest and and wanting to kill him um, or at least you know like like celebrating the fact that they were able to help you know so that was a that was a whole other dimension to this story that you had you had people who were alert and aware enough on the ground willing to put themselves in harm, harm's way to physically address you know capturing uh ramirez uh and you know you have clips of the mayor saying how proud he was of the people and it really was a, it was really kind of an, a nice moment where you know that was the, that was the kind of unpredictable you know movie level uh drama you know feel good moment of the whole story um and uh you know so so there was that as well so it was just a really good well produced uh show that is well worth the watch mm-hmm. um i think uh, for a number of different reasons and not the least of which is like you know sitting there i remember when i was sitting there and you know ramirez is you know they're going through the th- the scene and he's he's sitting on the bus and the people like you know look at him in my mind i'm like come on guys rally together you can do this and then you know a, a short while later after you know he's getting chased through the streets and everything and the the people finally catch him and they swarm him and they you know they don't let him go i'm like yeah <laughs> uh so it's yeah it's a good it's a good show uh, well worth the watch um so do we want to transition to ramirez himself yeah um one thing I want to just mention, I guess, is his presentation, his physical presentation. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, I think like you described uh, at the start, Ilan, he had a very powerful body odor. There was a guy at the, at the library where, you know, Richard Ramirez had come in and the guy was like, he smelled like a goat. It was just awful and, you know, terrible teeth and everything. Um, which reminded me of Ira Einhorn mm-hmm. and his uh, disdain for you know that that part of uh, human decency yeah. to like take care of yourself so that way you're not offensive to others and and just his complete disregard for what you know how he was uh, affecting other people in that very basic way and I just wanted to you know throw that out as an interesting you know, tidbit of about mm. him. Yeah. And so, well, while he was at the library, he goes up to this librarian and asks for, to see all their section on horoscopes and torture. <laughs> so <laughs> the librarian who's interviewed says, you know, luckily that was not in my department. So he didn't have to deal with this guy, but then he recognized him after his photo was released that this was the guy. Well, so Ramirez, I guess, um, <clears throat> where to start? Well, I guess there's that. I'll, another thing on his personal presentation. So, in the first episode, they interview one lady who had... It was the same lady, right, who had encountered him earlier at the store at like a, a thrift shop mm-hmm. and was looking at this ACD, ACDC cap that you mentioned, Dylan, that he wore. And she was looking at the cap, and she thought it was interesting. She didn't know what it meant, but it it looked interesting. But then she she put the cap down, and then this guy comes up next to her, and kind of 
I think he might have smiled at her or something, and then he takes the cap and he buys it. Then she's driving on the, the freeway later that day, and this guy just this guy driving just comes up speeding like a maniac and pulls up next to her and I think I can't remember if they were stopped or not, but she looks over and it's the same guy and he, he said she was he was just uh she said he was smiling at her, showing these just nasty teeth and it was like an evil clown. Mm-hmm. Like he was deliberately like trying to terrify her. This was an aspect of a lot of the killings that uh that Gil Carrillo had put together early on is that it seemed like like um Ramirez liked seeing his victims in fear and just because of some of the ways the crimes played out that it looked like he wanted them to be afraid before he killed them. And you can see this because it is one of the interesting things about Ramirez is that there are some shots of him, some like video and images where he looks very handsome. Like um, his, his, his features are just charismatic by themselves. He could be a rock star or, or a, or a you know a male model or something, but there are other shots of him just maybe just from slightly angles or when he's smiling, showing his teeth, where he just looks demonic, um, just terrifying. And to have those two different like that range, that just one just slides really easily into the other. It's it's an interesting phenomenon because a lot of them talked about how talked about just how ugly he could be. Um, but that gets into the, the the trial and once he became public and you could see his personality. So there's that, that about him, his, his self-presentation, um, dirty, unkempt, uh, well, filthy. And then you learn a bit about his history and that is, well, before I get into his history, I'll talk a little bit about, um, his psychopathy. When you see him in the courtroom in the video of him in the courtroom, he's hamming it up. Like he's, He's strutting in. He's like he's smiling. He's got sunglasses on. Like uh, he's leaning back in his chair. Like and then, um, the the most infam- infamous thing he did, I think it was maybe after his first uh, appearance in court. He stands up at the end and he holds up his hand, and that's where he's got the pentagram written on his hand. And then he's getting led away, and he says, "Hail Satan." And so there's a bunch of discussion about about what what was going on with his Satanism, because he was leaving pentagrams and weird stuff at, at various of these crime scenes. One time he was almost um, caught by a, a, a policeman. They were looking for his car, one of his stolen cars, and he was driving it, and some cop on his motorbike pulls him over for, I think, just a traffic violation, and hears that they're looking for this car. And so he... So at that moment, Ramirez draws this pentagram really quick on the car and just runs away, and the, and the guy couldn't catch him. So it was like his, one of his calling cards. And like, you know, he was, like with the librarian, he was asking for books about torture and horoscopes. And in various interviews afterwards, he had talked about his interest in Satanism. And uh, so that was an aspect of, of what was going on. Now, how much of it was actually him... Did he actually believe or how much of it was a show he was putting on? Because he did talk about it for the rest of his life. He only died in, what was it, 2013? 13? Yeah, not very long ago. And in most of those interviews, um, he, he talks about it and, and speaks about it very seriously. Like, yes, like Satan is a force and that I've, and I can't really just, I can't really describe it, but sort of, Satan is a source of evil that I feel and 
like inside me. Well, let me um, let me read a few of those quotes okay, from, for some insight into his thinking, uh, because they they are interesting, and um, I, I did have a couple of comments on on that as well. Uh, here they go. He says, "You don't understand me. You are not expected to. You are not capable. I am beyond your experience. I am beyond good and evil. I will be avenged. Lucifer dwells in all of us." I don't believe in the hypocritical, moralistic dogma of this so-called civilized society. You maggots make me sick. Hypocrites, one and all. I don't need to hear all of society's rationalizations. I've heard them all before. Legions of the night, night breed, repeat not the errors of the night prowler and show no mercy. Here's another one. Um, I love to kill people. I love to watch them die. I would shoot them in the head and they would wiggle and squirm all over the place and then just stop. Or I would cut them with a knife and watch their faces turn real white. I love all that blood. So that really that really speaks to what you were saying a moment ago about, you know, the the detective's observations about his getting off on uh the 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 suffering and the fear that he was able to see in his victims and uh, also connects to many um, many uh, serial killers and the, the connection between se sexual gratification and violence and power over one's victim. Um, this is another doozy quote from Ramirez. He says, I believe in a malevolent being. His description eludes me but I have felt powers that are evil. That's what you were yeah, paraphrasing before. And um, so I, I did just want to comment on that because <clears throat> Ramirez did inspire a great deal of fear, not only among people who uh, were living in Los Angeles and were concerned that you know they might be the, his next victim, but also among the investigators. Uh, at one point, uh, and and this is where it gets it gets interesting in a, in a kind of another uh, facet of of this whole story, and that is Gil Carrillo, the the Latino uh, rookie investigator detective that that's partnered with the um, with the veteran Frank Salerno, the legend who broke the Hillside Strangler case. Uh, Carrillo describes one of the first investigations um, of, of a murder of a woman in her house and how just prior to her murder, uh, Ramirez had encountered her roommate in the garage of the house where they, they had some kind of scuffle and Maria Hernandez, I think her name is, uh, manages to escape before she comes back to the house to see if her roommate's okay. Now, when the detective is investigating the house, Someone comes to the house, and it's a familiar voice to him. And she comes in, and he recognizes her as a former neighbor uh, of his, where he used to grow up in, a, in another part of L.A., and uh, who he affectionately knows as Pumpkin. So he's like, <laughs> Pumpkin, what are you doing here? And she says, I I'm, I'm Maria's mother. So the who was the woman who escaped the first interaction with Hernandez. And, uh, and so Correa, Carrillo says, you know, this, this made the whole case kind of 
hit close to home a little bit because here, you know, one of the potential victims was the daughter of a neighbor of mine who I know. Now, later on in the story, um, we get another uh, interesting anecdote. So this is after several murders have occurred, folks. And um, there is a, uh, a crime scene technician that we get to hear from. Her name is Linda Arthur, who works closely with Carrillo and Salerno in you know getting evidence and tracking data. And she says that one night she's home, you know, with, with her friends, uh, they had a hot tub, um, you know, uh, taking time out to relax. And, um, and her friends tell her, there's someone calling you from across the street, Linda. So, uh, Linda realizes that it's her neighbor who's, who's screaming for help, who, as it happens, was, calling for help from her bedroom. She had been handcuffed to her bed and she had just been raped by uh, Ramirez. So this is, you know, this is yet another kind of very close, you know, is it a coincidence? Is it, you know, what what's going, there's this extra level of uh, weirdness, in my opinion, that, um, that exists in the case with these two coincidences, you know, these two so-called coincidences. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ramirez wasn't, you know, he was just basically going after people who he, he found it, you know, easy enough prey. He wasn't that methodical. He wasn't, you know, using databases to 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 tr- to track down possible detectives who might, you know, and people that he they knew to attack. So there are those two bits that that are at least noteworthy in my opinion. And there was. Um, there was just one more kind of bit of weirdness uh, that speaks to the terror that Ramirez inspired in people, um, which was conveyed and and described by uh, Gil Carrillo himself. And this is the first time that they have, it's one of the earlier times that they have Ramirez in, in custody, in a cell where they're interviewing him. And he describes Ramirez kind of, Looking down with his with his hands or his fists on the table and 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 kind of lifting them and, and then he's, and he's hyperventilating he's, when he's breathing he's hyperventilating and it looks really weird right so so Carrillo says you know for a split second there I I, I kind of half expected him to start floating around the room as though he per, he were possessed and if that happened I was going to leave the 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 point being you know this anecdote goes towards uh, conveying the fact that, you know, that there is there are these like little subtle hints of some maybe preternatural evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you take that with, with everything Ramirez has said about Satanism and him being beyond good and evil and, and uh, his bloodlust. And you think, you know, you have to wonder if on some level, you know, it, was there some connection to, to some... You know, in all his LSD trips and all his maybe mm-hmm. rituals, you know, satanic rituals that he might have indulged in, what was this guy? Was this guy connected to anything? You know, yeah. Was there something else going on? Was there there? something yeah. else going on? Yeah. Well, um, I'll just throw in uh, another uh, interesting anecdote uh, before kind of getting into that question. Um, and this one I found very, very interesting. 
Uh, and that was the time that this was, you know, several months into the investigation where Gil had woken up mm-hmm. at three thirty in the morning and was like, he's in my house mm-hmm. and, you know, took his gun, uh, and cleared his house, you know, going from room to room, uh, because it's like, he can feel it. He knows that he's there. And no one else is home. His family had left because they had left after um, another case had happened not five minutes from their house. Um, so the fa- his family had said, you know, we're, we're out of here until this is over. So he was by himself. So then, you know, he wakes up in the middle of the night thinking, you know, he can feel this presence. And so he's, you know, checking everything out and there's nothing there. Um, and then just, you know, proceeds to watch a John Wayne film on TV to try and relax. And then he gets a phone call, mm-hmm. and Ramirez had struck, and that and it was the it was the incident that Alan told. It was Linda Arthur talking about her neighbor that he'd just raped her neighbor. Oh, so it was this, like that's one dimension, like just that connection between you know the the case and the investigators, and then there's this you know whole other element there where you know he's where Gil is tuned into this whole, uh, I guess into Ramirez maybe, uh, to such an extent that he was able to feel the fear of, uh, you know, whoever, uh, the victim was at the time. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was, you know, just super bizarre on the one hand, but also not entirely, um, unexpected, I guess you yeah. could say for having spent so much time, like getting, trying mm-hmm. to get into his mind and yeah, it reminds me of the interview we did we did with James Carpenter, the psychologist, and he was telling, tell, I mean, a totally different scenario, but he was talking about one of his uh, patients, you know, having a, I, I probably won't get the story co- totally correct, but a, a suicidal episode, and he just, all of a sudden, like, the that person came to mind, and he and he just had the the compulsion to call them and see what was going on, and he managed to, you know, intervene to to stop this this person from committing suicide. Mm-hmm. And so in that case with Carrillo, he's so involved in this case, he's been spending like 18 hours a day on it, some sometimes more, getting very little sleep. And the it, it was like the, just like in uh, Carpenter's first sight theory, it was the emotional significance of the connection, right? Because he was, he, he knew Linda Arthur and they were friends and they'd known each other for, for years. And, and the, that connection with, with Ramirez and with her neighbor, it was like that, that kind of would make it more significant for him. So I, I, I it's totally believable to me that, that mm-hmm. something like that would happen. And yeah, there was just that weird, that extra weird element. So there's the, the weird element about the kind of coincidences going on and the way the synchronicities actually reminds me, I won't get into it, but we all, we've also, Watched the most of the um, vanishing at vanishing the at the Hotel. Cecil Hotel mm-hmm. about Elisa Lam, a very interesting uh, case from several years ago. Um, just one connection there. It's it, uh, Elisa Lam was the Vancouver girl who disappeared, stayed at the Cecil Hotel, and was eventually found in the the water reservoir you know container on top of the hotel mm-hmm. a very weird case um the documentary series goes into a lot of details 
But one of the things they didn't mention in this document, in the Ramirez documentary, was that Cecil Hotel was where Richard Ramirez was hanging out, at least some of the time. And that he would he would go there between murders, and that's where he would stay. There in the Cecil Hotel documentary, they talk about how he would arrive, kind of just drenched in in blood, having bloody clothes, no shoes on, just walk up to his room. And the Cecil Hotel was shady enough, right in Skid Row, right on the border of Skid Row, that uh, you know no one really thought anything of it. So, and there's a whole lot of weird stuff with the Cecil Hotel. He wasn't the only serial killer to hang out there. So that kind of adds another level of weirdness to the whole situation. But uh, maybe we can get back to that. I want to, I want to talk, about, uh, talk a bit about this question of how, we, how someone like this, how, how Ramirez came to be. Was he born or made? So, and, uh, and as an introduction to that, I'll read a bit from a, a recent article from Screen Rant said, uh, called, What the Night Stalker Documentary Leaves Out About Richard Ramirez. So I'm going to read some excerpts and then, ta- and then comment on them. So the author writes, But if there's a major criticism to be made, it's that Night Stalker doesn't provide much analysis about Ramirez's frame of mind, and instead relies too much on retro aesthetics and played-out tropes, um, and played-out serial killer tropes. Like so many serial killer-themed docuseries, Night Stalker glosses over the subject's childhood years and invests little time in explaining why Ramirez not only killed adult men and women, but also molest, molested young children. The fourth and final Netflix episode, Manhunt, wisely begins with exposition about Richard's upbringing and includes the rather important information that his father repeatedly tied him to a cross in a cemetery. Plus, it's also revealed that Richard witnessed his cousin murder his wife. Uh, murder his cousin murdered his cousin's wife within two minutes however night stalker leaves such horrible stories behind and doesn't attempt to further psychoanalyze the subject or at least connect the dots for audiences so on the one hand um the author of this article has a point in the sense that there isn't much focus on ramirez's background or his psychology that's as far as you know I, i kind of agree with it the, the, the show is mostly about the investigation. <clears throat> but to give an idea of some of those past things, um, some of those things that happened in his childhood, he was like severely beaten. Uh, we'll start at the very beginning. When his mother was pregnant with him, she, in, she, had, uh, she was exposed to various chemicals and got sick. And so there's a very real possibility that he actually had some... Um, some probably some brain damage from when he was in the womb. That's a contributing factor to violence, um, later violence. When he was, uh, he had various head injuries in his childhood. Mm-hmm. He had temporal lobe epilepsy as a result. Mm-hmm. He had multiple seizure, seizures as a kid and uh, nightmares about monsters. And, and it, then he started taking drugs at a very young age. At, I think at 10, he started smoking marijuana. He got into LSD. He had these crazy LSD trips. And, I th- and that's when he got started getting into Satanism. So you have these, like, probably epileptic hallucinations. You have LSD-induced hallucinations. That's prob- I'm guessing that's probably where he got some of this imagery and this dark force, like, uh, starting, to, starting to come to know what he called Satan, that dark force within him, and w- with which he had a connection and that dark force 
you know, if you don't go the the kind of paranormal route, it part of that could be just the the darkness within him because his his brain was totally janked up. But I'll, I'll get into more about that. Um, the, his early childhood influences, aside from the the abuses he received, his he, he had like three men in his in his life that were role model, role models of a sort. There was his uh, was it his cousin Mike? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's the one who 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 he witnessed shoot and kill his his wife. Mike had been a Vietnam vet, and sounds like a a real psycho himself. Mm-hmm. He had enjoyed like raping and murdering Vietnamese women in the war and had photographs, trophy photographs that he would show young Richard Ramirez. Young Richard Ramirez was sexually aroused by these photos, which are which were pretty gruesome. Like I, I don't even want to describe them. You can find the description even on Wikipedia or any number of articles online. But just totally nasty, disgusting stuff. And that's what that's the that was one kind of influence on him. Mike also taught him how to kill stealthily, you know, his his battlefield experience. His brother taught him how to break and enter. And his sister, his sister's husband, took him around uh, to spy on people having sex. They'd camp out people's houses and and watch them. So there was this voyeuristic activity too. So he was an early voyeur, um, had a sadistic streak already, and um, that that uh, uh, paraphilia, and that that knowledge and that um, yeah, the knowledge of how to kill, how to how to break and enter, how to kill. All of that stuff was there, um, like for him to use later in life. He was also just a small fact. He was a sugar junkie. Uh, which uh, creates all kinds of um, terrible effects on the brain, and uh, and it, you know it, that's a that's a kind of an early drug. So you know, taking that with all the with all the real drugs that he was using, um, I mean, he, the guy had an inflamed brain, mm-hmm. exacerbating all of the toxicity and the brain damage he already had. Mm-hmm. So. I'll read a I'll read a bit more from this article and then talk a bit about Adrian Rain because uh, his work is very important here I think so more from the article psychiatrist Dorothy Ottnow Lewis details her experiences working with mass murderers since the 80s and how her evaluations were largely dismissed because people like Ramirez were categorized as simply being evil or insane. However, the information provided during the first two minutes of Night Stalker's fourth episode suggests that Ramirez was traumatized as a child by his father which could potentially explain why he later targeted men during his killing spree. And if Ramirez resented his mother for not protecting him, then that could also explain why he eventually sexually assaulted adult women after murdering their their male partners. Plus, the fact that the Night Stalker attacked little kids may suggest that he was lashing out for what happened to him as a child, especially when considering that Ramirez's uncle, a Vietnam War vet, reportedly showed him photos of women he had raped and murdered. So that's the kind of psychoanalytic thing is that okay he had these experiences and so he's kind of recreating these these childhood traumas and um yeah so we'll talk about that about that a bit what adrian rain shows now there's there's all kinds of different psychological theories for why stuff happens but what seems to be pretty well demonstrated is that there are certain risk factors that when combined have this kind of cumulative 
effect on how a person's going to turn out. If you start from the bottom, if you start from the biology, if you don't have any biological markers, then chances are if you have a social marker, and this might mean, might mean a form of like childhood abuse or something like that, it won't ha necessarily have as much of an effect. And, but if you have all of these biological markers, these biological like predispositions, then the social markers, those two added together, give a, a much bigger outcome than either would on their own. So you can have biological uh, risk factors on their own, and they have a small effect. Social risk factors on their own, and they have a small effect. Both of them together, and they've got a really big effect. Mm -hmm. So a, just like dismissing him as just evil and leaving it at that doesn't explain anything, and it ignores his childhood, I'll give, her, I'll give the author of this piece, I don't know if it's him or her, that point. But psychoanalysis is not, a, is not an explanation either. Just the fact that he had these bad things happen to him does not explain why he committed these crimes. The the A better explanation, maybe not a full explanation, is that combination. Because um, I've read numerous articles kind of doing a retrospective PCLR test for Ramirez, so if he was a psychopath. And as far as I can tell, I found three. None of them seemed like great, but... It seems like um, he probably was a psychopath, and watching him, you see, yeah, he kind of fits the bill. Um, one study gave him a like an 18 out of 24, which is like a smaller version of the PCLR, which uh, is um, within the psychopathic range. Another source that it, I couldn't really find um, documentation for gave him 31 out of 40, which is the full PCLR, which is and 30 is the cutoff. So he was probably a psychopath. Another. Um, another guy, this is on the Wikipedia page, a psychiatrist, Michael Stone, diagnosed him as schizoid personality disorder. Mm -hmm. And that could also be true as well, because he was, he was an odd kid. Like he, he wasn't always like outgoing and, and, um, like, uh, charismatic. He was kind of a loner kid and that's, that is more of a schizoid thing. So there, it doesn't really, uh, doesn't really matter. Um, because the, the common, the common element that seems to be expressing itself is just the total callousness, the total lack of, um, uh, of remorse or the, the capacity for any depth of emotion. And so what seems to be the case with Ramirez is that he pretty much had all of the risk factors put together. He had whatever predisposes towards a personality disorder, whether it's like, uh, whatever's going on there, cause no one really knows but having to do with personality character characteristics and this underlying personality structure, um, probably some biological genetic predisposition that leads uh, that leads like uh, a kid to have a higher risk factor. These things going on in the womb, this childhood brain damage. He had all sorts of brain damage, probably all sorts of developmental brain disorder, which contribute that's probably linked to personality disorder to some degree, and all of the influences and like educational material to then put all of that together to get kind of that worst of the worst, which we consider, you know, serial killers. So, and he was, when he was old enough, he was self-taught. Like you mentioned that he was, he, he kind of uh, learned from Ted Bundy and other serial killers, including this hillside strangler and Israel keys did the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's like the, the, one of the common features 
with with serial killers that you mentioned was this um this paraphilia aspect to it there is a sexual thing about about killing and and torture and things like this and of course um these people recognize that about themselves they have some self-awareness they know what their urges are and what they what they want but they can also recognize it in other people so a person like this will recognize that that ted bundy was just like them um Israel Keys recognized that. Ramirez recognized that. And so they they then can take in that information and actually learn from it and and incorporate the successes of other people like them into their own um you know their own killing and their own thing like that. So Ramirez seemed to have been like I said this perfect combination of of like horrible experiences in childhood, brain damage, and he was probably um, like without any of that, without the additional brain damage, without the horrible childhood experiences. Probably he probably still would have been a psychopath or a schizoid or you know some combination of the two. But all of that stuff on top of that turned him into a like a hypersexual paraf- paraphilic serial killer. That um, and I think that's. You know, there's all of the all of these things are still mysteries to a degree of why these happen, why these things happen, and how people like this turn out that way. But it seems to be these combinations of things that go together to 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 make that like a that recipe for this this type of individual who's very rare. It's like there there aren't that many psychopaths considering. I mean, not there aren't there aren't that many serial killers considering how many people there are in the world. That's an interesting way of looking at it that isn't uh i guess really well uh well it's obviously not well understood um but just the fact that you can have a oh gosh i can't remember who it was um was talking about how you have a psychopath and it's how they're raised that determines what kind of a psychopath they become mm-hmm. you know they can either become just a uh, somebody who's super impulsive and, you know, gets uh, uh, thrown in prison for carjacking uh, and low-level offenses along those lines. Or you can have somebody who was raised in a good home who had, you know, access to higher education and then they go on to be uh, a wolf on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's... Or they have, you know, this uh, terrible upbringing uh, coupled with the training uh and then they become uh the paraphilic uh master manipulator murderer uh and that kind of a thing so that's a i think that's a good approach to take to it is not to um is to to say that there is like a a biological undercurrent and then upon that is the the software which programs them to do a b c or d yeah and i think that's that's kind of the best way to to look at it yeah then that leads into one of the craziest things it we we mentioned it briefly i think in our show with josh slocum Mm -hmm. the fact that well i'll lead into it by this like there's a lot of people who go further than this article and saying that uh you know we should we should actually feel sorry for psychopaths and it's it's not it's society's fault for turning them into this. And this is actually what psychopaths or like serial killers tend to say themselves. 
like a society made me do it and and it's uh, it's just it's just all all you people that turned me into this into this monster so you get a lot of people that um that sympathize with serial killers but not only that you get the groupies so at the at the trial this they deal with this in episode 4 ramirez had this whole following of young female groupies that were just in love with him as soon as he like as he got in prison over the years and over the years they sent him like nude nude photos of themselves love letters he eventually ended up getting married to one of the one of his groupies they were married for 23 years until she found out like okay he's already in prison for uh he's been found guilty for 13 counts of murder however many rapes they didn't even um they didn't even charge him with the sex crimes against children because uh, they decided they didn't want to to subject the kids to that. They had enough of him on him already, and they didn't want to involve the the surviving kids in the trial. So it took twenty three years of marriage to Ramirez while he's in prison. Thirteen years was it? Uh, no, they were married in ninety six. Oh yeah, thirteen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read somewhere twenty three. They were well. She he he or she. I can't remember which of them proposed in eighty eight. They were married in ninety six. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then he, then they were divorced in two thousand nine. Right, and they were divorced because they used DNA to link him with the murder and rape of a nine year old in nineteen eighty four. So when she finally discovered that, and it was proven that he, that he murdered and raped a nine year old, she divorced him. It's like it took you that long to to figure it out. You had to wait for. <laughs> The other the other crimes weren't evil yeah, enough. Yeah, it, you know the, the the child was a you know oh, adults you know you rape and kill adults that that's okay you're a superstar but not children. She's got her she's got her values. But um, yes, yeah, so we uh, like you were saying, Harrison, we we commented on that a little bit in the interview with Josh Slocum. This kind of phenomena of uh, of women, you know, falling in love with these monsters. And um, the uh, the documentary that we watched also kind of provides a what I felt was a um, a good distinction or contrast to this phenomena, and and that is the uh, through interviews with many of the victims' um, sons and daughters and and grandchildren, uh, you you do get a very strong sense of the pain and the suffering of these individuals and the the humanity that they've um that they've that they embody and that they connect to in order to uh heal as much as they can and there was one very kind of poignant moment where the granddaughter of of two of the victims uh who appeared at court um to to attend one of the trials of Ramirez like after a half an hour she just has to leave and and step outside into the hall and sit down on a bench and she notices a young man sitting next to her and and of course she's wondering if he was also perhaps a the relative of someone who had been slayed by Ramirez and she feels kind of motivated to connect to to him, but then notices on his arm as he lifts his sleeve a pentagram on his arm. 
And she shares her realization that he wasn't there out of wanting to see any kind of justice served. He was there out of a sympathy, um, a, a kind of maybe a different kind of sympathy with Ramirez that, that the groupies had, which is a, a kind of a dark pathological uh, connection. And of course, she didn't say anything to him, but it was for her a realization that, you know, this darkness that Ramirez represents and that was uh, symbolically displayed by the pentagram tattoo of this boy who was sitting next to her on the bench in the hall suggests that there is, you know, it, it's still out there. It's still, there is a network, uh, if only um, a, a psychopathic network or of, of individuals who, for whatever reason, are able to want to gravitate towards the, the negative efforts of, of others um, like Ramirez and who have this stature. Of, of being closer to what evil is and what evil does. So uh, that was quite a moment to, to hear her realize this for herself um, outside of what had happened to her grandparents and the trial, that here was this young man she was quite willing to talk to and connect with and, and share her, her story with as, a, as the grandchild of slain people and, and no. He was there out of quite probably some kind of connection and sympathy to Ramirez. So uh, that was another virtue of the show, I think. It's getting all of these, you know, very human perspectives on, uh, you know, what is in most people's lives, unless you've experienced war, the closest thing to malevolence and pure evil that, uh, that many people uh, can ever fear to come close to. Just one more quote from this article that's on that subject. <clears throat> Unfortunately, Night Stalker doesn't explore the satanic paranoia of the mid-80s America during Ronald Reagan's presidency and how that might have effective, affected Ramirez's public posturing. Instead, the Netflix series perpetuates the idea that serial killers are simply evil because they kill. I just add to that, maybe they kill because they're evil as well. Um, and then she writes, or he, rather than exploring what led Ramirez to kill, Night Stalker repeatedly underlines the fact that he associated himself with evil. In reality, though, the killer's ACDC hat suggests that he was another metalhead, and his actions imply that he suffered from deep-rooted emotional trauma. So again, like, deep-rooted emotional trauma, does like, it's not even a good description. Um, there's deep-rooted emotional trauma that that leads someone to essentially have emotional problems but you have to have emotions to have emotional problems and an individual like Ramirez has a blunted set of emotions like psychopaths don't have the 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 raw material to to be emotionally to be emotionally how did she put it um to suffer deep-rooted emotional trauma it is it would be emotional trauma to a person to a normal person but to them it has a different effect. Like it's it's something else going on there. That's where it, why you have to get to the to the biological level too. But with the with the satanic thing, I think there was an element of like with the pentagram thing. Like he was creating an image for himself because he he knew that that devil stuff, you know, Satan, satanic stuff would freak people out. 
Of course it would, because you have a whole bunch of like uh, conservative people in the hysteria of the 80s, because the 80s were a hysterical time, of just the, the kind of paranoia and hysteria going around, that a pentagram was, is going to freak people out. And psychopaths know how to do that. And it, it's almost like a, it was like a teenage level prank in that sense. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't very sophisticated, but it worked. Like he, he did know what he was doing, but there is also that element that he actually was involved in, in Satanism to some degree. Like he, he was, he did read about it and he did involve himself in it to, to a degree. So it wasn't just a PR stunt. Yeah. He actually was involved in that or he was interested in that kind of stuff. Well, in one interview he says, um, he says, even psychopaths have emotions. Then again, maybe not. So, <laughs> I mean, what's interesting is that he, he's not unintelligent in, in some senses. I mean, he's, He's, he's thought a little bit about what he is and, and the definitions that have been ascribed to him. Um, and those quotes that were mentioned earlier, you know, they suggest, even if they're scripted, as one interviewer says, that he kind of practiced them, like, mm-hmm. like, like this is my creed, and, and, he, and you can sort of see him like remembering what he wanted to, what he memorized, because like, that, that was his, you know, you know, these were his ideas, but he wasn't so comfortable enough that he could just say them without, you know, having memorized them and sound like he memorized them. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, so it's hard to say whether or not he actually examined his emotions and whether or not, he, even if he did, how how well could he possibly assess himself? Well, to to the point that you were making about how a psychopath versus a non-psychopath deals with deep-rooted emotional trauma. You have a very good glimpse of just Mm. how deep-rooted, quote-unquote, his psychological traumas are when they find, like, that he went into people's fridges Mm -hmm. after he murdered them. So he murders and rapes people and kills them, whatever. There's blood everywhere and all of this stuff. If you had deep emotional traumas, you would be beside yourself with an emotional turmoil Mm -hmm. that the last thing that you would think to do would be to go into the fridge, crack open a Mountain Dew and eat a honeydew melon. Mm -hmm. So that just does not fly with me because he clearly was completely comfortable and had no qualms whatsoever with what he did. He was completely okay with it. It was just, you know, just a thing that he did. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I, yeah, I don't agree with that at all. And um, as far as, you know, the Satanism aspect and uh, his almost teenage games that he was playing with people, I think that was a, you know, that was a good portion of what he was doing was Mm -hmm. just because he, he knew how to manipulate people. He got off on the fear, Mm -hmm. which you can see from the murders. He got off on the fear. So if you have people who are primed to be fearful of, you know, the rise of Satanism, this, that, and the other, well, then obviously he's going to use that as mm-hmm. another means for him to to feed off of the, the fear and the anxiety and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I imagine that, you know, what he had read in, in terms of Satanism was maybe justification for him in, in some sense, but also fed into his own paraphilic nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it wasn't like we think of, you know, converting to an ideology. 
but more exploring this dark part of himself that he now has like an even more uh off-putting way to 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 uh address it or or to fulfill those those urges within him in a way that's going to make it even more uh substantial in terms of the effect that it has on on people because you can just imagine him you know after he's killed and all of these things and and then he writes you know the pentagram on the wall and blood i mean you know you can just imagine him like being turned on by the fact that this is going to freak people out mm-hmm. um so that's another aspect to that too uh so yeah it's and then as far as you know what i was saying earlier about the his connection to evil and where with all of these strange coincidences uh i imagine that on some level he did intentionally try to make some kind of connection um because I imagine, you know, that with all of the, the LSD hallucinations and such, that he did come across uh, something that, you know, he described as Satan. And again, it becomes this paraphilic mm-hmm. thing. So then he, he wants more of it. And so he, he tries to explore that connection. Um, and so that's just kind of like, you know, what I was thinking along those lines. So Yeah, I just had one, one final comment. There are a few good videos, like if you want to see, there are some short videos of interviews with Ramirez on YouTube, so you can search search those and find them pretty easily. And in one of them, there's an there's a short clip of uh, some news reporters talking to Salerno on the street, and I think it might have been in the '90s after one of his like appeal, one of his appeals. Um, and they ask the question something like, "Why did Ramirez do what he did?" Right. And Salerno responds, "Because he wanted to kill. You know, that's what he wanted to do." And I think that's kind of the best answer. There, there is a lot of mystique and, and intrigue and stuff around the concept, but when it comes down to it, it, it pretty much is, when you look at it in terms of the paraphilia, it makes a lot more sense. Like, because psychopath, serial, psychopathic serial killers describe it themselves. That, and, and what's the book um, by one of the FBI profilers, um, the monsters in the title, um, oh, whoever fights monsters. Yeah, whoever fights monsters. He describes it pretty well. And basically, over the years, like throughout um, throughout puberty and throughout the young years, these types of people will develop a sexual fantasy that involves some kind of violence. And it's often very specific. Might, might have, like with Ramirez, it might have, there might have been a few of them. And that fantasy grows and grows and grows as they fantasize it over the years until it until they have to um do it in real life and it is that kind of uncontrollable urge and then when they do it um some most of the time something goes wrong it isn't quite perfect they have to do it again and again and it's like it's like being it's like being a drug addict you have to keep going back for more and you can see this in the in the ramirez uh crimes where um there was one example in the show where he couldn't he couldn't uh, like finish the. I think it was. Oh yeah, it was a couple. He shot the the wife in the th- in the face, and the bullet like went through, missed everything, and and like lodged in her neck, and she was still alive. Mm-hmm. Like it just it was that lucky shot, lucky for her. And then he shot the husband point blank, and that bullet you know entered same thing, 
the the bullet didn't actually do anything so the so the the, the husband now is charging after Ramirez Ramirez freaks out and runs out the and runs away basically because he's just shot two people point blank and nothing's happened and there's blood you know blood flying everywhere and this guy's coming after him and then later that I'm pretty sure it was that night then he went and he committed another crime because he hadn't gotten what he wanted mm-hmm. so for for guys like Ramirez it's pretty much a sexual fantasy that they have that they then have to play out in real life and they have to do it over and over again it's not deep-rooted emotional trauma. It's like something has been wired into their brain that uh, that causes them to perform this certain behavior and to want to perform it and to need to perform it, and then they do it. Once once they do it, they they keep doing it because they have to. Um, at least that's the way that's the way that they experience it. And that's the way Ramirez described it in, in an interview. It's it's this compulsion that just has to be. Um, how did he, he do? How did he describe it? That he—it's this compulsion that has to be completed, otherwise he would be destroyed or something like that. You know, something yeah. something dramatic. But right. I think it was um, well something that's described about psychopaths where they have, uh, um, like they're not—they don't have the same dopaminergic responses to to normal things that you and I have. You know this. Uh, dopamine response to like you know you and I might have uh, some fun playing uh, baseball and that's just that does absolutely nothing for them so when you live a a life of just you know nothing and then you find something that uh, peaks your dopamine Mm -hmm. and and this is something that peaks dopamine like above and beyond you know anything that we would experience that's why there is this compulsion. It's, they are driven by their biology to to fulfill this this need for that stimulation because that's what makes them feel alive. Well, that's probably a as as decent a kind of summation of the program and of Ramirez as, uh, as we could do right now, and. Um, discussion of the psychopath, the intraspecies predator that, uh, that exists is uh, certainly worth thinking about and reflecting upon a little bit, if only as a reminder that um, you know, many individuals, even if they you know, don't smell the high heaven and, and, and seem quite normal, uh, are quite prepared because of their makeup to do uh, inhuman things to other people. So uh, a good reminder, we hope. And um, thanks for listening. Take care, everyone.